0: Let's turn to Isaiah chapter six. Move <clears throat> Isaiah chapter six, reading from verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. The house was filled with smoke. And I said, "Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, we've already indicated this is the first Sunday of Advent. But the Reformed tradition has been equivocal in observing Advent. At least it is in the Presbyterian Scottish-influenced branch of the Reformed world. In fact, when I was growing up, Christmas uh, wasn't observed very much in Scotland. It was observed simply in the passing. Uh, Not much was done at church about it. There were no Christmas Eve services, as I recall, no Christmas Day services, As I recall, the main focus was on New Year, on Hogmanay, which is the night before the New Year, and all the preparations for that. New Year's Day was the day you went and saw your families. It was equivalent to Thanksgiving in terms of the movement of people. Uh, New Year's Day was the big thing, and the, the reason for that is the prevalence of Presbyterianism in Scotland. The Romanists observed Christmas. Presbyterians didn't. And, uh, and I remember doing very naughty things as a boy, and that is going to the Roman Catholic Church, not going in, but to the, to the little, they, they would have a, a crash on the outside, and I thought that was a good statement. I, even, even then, I was against the current, against the flow. Let me read to you from the Westminster Assembly Directory for Public Worship. This is what it says. Festival days, vulgarly called holy days, holidays, having no warrant in the word of God, are not to be continued. So that should be the end of it, and we should go home (laughs) right now. But uh, I have a friend called Scott Clark, who teaches at Westminster Seminary West, who is the gatekeeper for Reformed Orthodoxy. And in dealing with this whole question, he deals with it, as I've dealt with it. He, you know, I've told you the facts. You can do with those facts what you will. He tells you the facts. And then he says this, but Christmas is here. So that does give us the opportunity to think about the incarnation of our Lord. Well, with all that enthusiasm, let's do that then, in these Sundays that we have ahead of us. Well, the problem is that when we come to talk about the incarnation of Jesus is, is a very, very dense and difficult subject. We're talking about something for which we have no category of thought to understand. It's beyond our comprehension. I mean, it's like standing up and talking about the Holy Trinity. Once I've told you the bits that you need to know, you will leave none the wiser, really, in terms of comprehending with your mind. Or being able to explain to your children what is the Holy Trinity. And if you use any of the illustrations, you will be disciplined uh, because the illustrations don't illustrate it. In fact, what the illustrations do is they communicate every error that's ever been conceived about the Holy Trinity, believe it or not. So, no pictures, no explanations of the Holy Trinity to your children using an illustration. Uh, So now that I've rebuked you, come back. uh, And as we think of this question that I have for us today. It's in two parts, really. What was Jesus doing before Jesus was in Mary's womb? Another part to this question. What was Jesus doing when he was in Mary's womb? So those are interesting questions, aren't they? In the Gospels, whenever we read Jesus himself speaking, very often he uses language like this. He uses the language of coming into the world. We sometimes talk about our children, coming into the world. We mean by that they're born into the world. And Jesus is not using it specifically in that way. Let me read you from John 3. He says this, No one has ascended into heaven... But he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus is using three descriptions there. He has descended, he's been sent by the Father, and he has come into the world. But neither of, none of those descriptions actually explain anything to us. Uh, we can't comprehend how, how that came to be. Did he physically get on an elevator in heaven and press zero and come down and land at Bethlehem, get out as a little baby? No. Was, there, was some alteration made to the, in the universe to the being of God? No. So, we don't understand the details. That language is language, obviously, human language, to communicate something that's really incommunicable to us. What we, what we understand is what we sing when we sing, love came down at Christmas. But I insist on asking the question, what was Jesus doing before he became Jesus? Let's look at John's gospel. Don't look it up. You know it well. We'll be reading it, I'm sure, and somebody will be preaching on it at some point over this Christmas period if i i actually haven't checked up to see what they're doing, but uh, uh, we'll get a chance to talk about that this week. But in John chapter 1, it reads like this. In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. Before he was Jesus, the Word, the Word of God. But what beginning is it referring to? Well, it refers to the beginning of everything, everything you and I know as creatures, everything that this universe knows in terms of its existence. The beginning begins when God created the heavens and the earth. God's act of creation marks the beginning. On the other hand, the text is saying that at the beginning, the word, Jesus, before he was Jesus. The word was already with God. Who has no beginning. And the word was God. So as, not to, uh, was, uh, so as not to confuse us. The word was God. In other words, when we say he was with God. We're not saying he was God's sidekick. God's partner. Uh, God's servant. Uh, some th- someone distinct from God. No, the word was God in the beginning. Now, John, John chapter 1 resembles a bit what, like what we read in uh, Philippians chapter 2 where we see the same movement. The one who was in the beginning in the form of God took the form of a servant and became man. So what those passages are telling you is that before Jesus became Jesus, And even while Jesus was Jesus, Jesus is God. Jesus is God, enjoying the eternity of God. He's eternally God. And that brings me to the topic I want to speak about today. At least I want to introduce it because I'm not going to say anything exhaustive this morning. But I want to talk about the eternity of Jesus. Now, the eternity as an idea, a theological idea, stems from the theological concept of God's infinity, his infinity. Now, infinity means that God is not bounded by space. That is to say that there is nowhere either inside or outside of the universe where God is not. Wherever you go, there God is. And this is a great encouragement, I think, to the believer, that we can never find ourselves in any circumstance or location or point in life in which God is not. That's what Jesus was teaching us when he said to the disciples when He was sending them out to make disciples of all the nations, and he said to them, "Lo, I'm with you always, to the ends." of the earth. This is what God means to us when he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you in your affliction, in your conflict, in your aloneness, in your sense of your struggle with your identity. Let the infinity of God be your comfort. You are never alone, however alone you may feel. In the darkness, you are never alone because you cannot escape from God's goodness and mercy and presence. So eternity then belongs, first of all, to the infinity of God. God is not bounded by space. The boundlessness of God. But secondly, eternity relates to God's infinity of existence. That is to say, it tells us something about the timelessness of God. The timelessness of God. Jesus in his human nature may be born in Bethlehem, but even at that point that he's in his mother's womb, or when born is in his mother's arms... He exists as the God who has always existed. Not one change has taken place to him. Not one alteration to his life. His human nature has been born as our human nature is born when we are born. His human nature came into existence in the womb of his mother and he was born as a little baby thing. But as the person he was, the son of God, God from all eternity... He has always existed as God. So when a Christian reads Psalm 90, Lord, you've been our dwelling place. The Christian thinks when he says, Lord of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, he's saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation. Before the mountains were brought forth and you formed the earth and the world from everlasting or from eternity to eternity, you are God. When we speak of God as Lord, we are speaking to Jesus. For Jesus is Lord. When we, as his people, say to him, you have been our dwelling place from generation to generation, we are confessing that as long as the earth has existed, God has been to his people the same thing. He has been our place of safety. Peter van Maastricht, one of the great Reformed theologians, puts it like this, uh, you have been the same thing for us, That is a house for for us as the residents of a house, protecting them from whatever harm may come from the weather. Here, the word dwelling denotes a dwelling place, a place to stay. That is a perpetual place to stay, not an inn, not an Airbnb. Maastricht didn't actually say that, it's a bit before his time. Not an Airbnb, but a refuge. A place of safety for God's own people, as long as his people exist on the earth. God's eternity entails that God remains what he was, what he was, he is. And what he is, he will be. He is our safety. He is our home. And he is that for all eternity. So to be eternal means then that God is not in time. There's no movement or succession or or duration or getting ahead of things in God. Of the number of his years, there is no finding out, it says in the book of Job. Just eternal, God is eternally. And now that's important for us because... His mercy is eternal. And his rule is eternal. His dominion is eternal. His glory is eternal. Here's what's important for us His life is eternal. We have the promise of eternal life. Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, puts it like this He is without beginning and without end, truly and always the same, keeping himself in the same mode. He alone is God and the Lord of all. Or Hillary, one of the early church fathers. He gets us to do a little exercise. He says, run with your senses to whatever seems ultimate to you. Do a mind exercise. Run with your senses to whatever seems ultimate to you. You will always be going towards Him, Always moving in his direction. Or again, cycle through the centuries. And you will always find him. And though you will run out of numbers to count the days, God will never run out. Stir up your understanding and embrace his whole being with your mind. If you could embrace the whole being of God with your mind. And you have nothing. You have nothing. Because he is everything left. And what is left is always whole and complete. You never take anything away from God. He is eternally who he is. Are you confused yet? This is beyond our comprehension. Now, this brings us to the text Isaiah 6. Isaiah puts it in perspective. It's the year that King Uzziah died. He was a good king, mostly. The year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne high and lifted up. Isaiah has gone to the temple to worship. His problem is he can't get into the temple. God's in the temple and there's no place for Isaiah. He's stuck at the threshold of the temple. Because the whole house is filled with the presence of God. Then we remind ourselves... That the temple and before it the tabernacle were designed by God to remind the worshipper of the universe, the stars in the sky, that were that were decorating the ceiling, the the, the colours of earth, and the colours of the, and the, and the the animal-like features reminded us of all creatures in creation. Because when we worship, we worship on behalf of all of creation, the whole universe. We worship on behalf of the universe because we are sentient beings and are able to offer the praise that they cannot. So the temple and the tabernacle represented the entire universe, which is a sanctuary in which God lives and in which God is worshipped. So this vision captures, you see, the infinity and immensity that fills the whole universe with the presence of God, and beyond. And so the seraphs sing, "Holy, holy, holy, Lord God of hosts; the whole earth is full of your glory." Now, when Isaiah saw this, you, you notice that Isaiah did, did not actually see God. God as He is in Himself, God in His essence. We're told in John chapter one that no one has ever seen God, because God is spirit. In our confession of faith, we say that God is without body or parts or passions. Things that characterize us do not characterize God. And you can see Isaiah's reticence. He speaks of robes and a throne and attendance and a song. Those things point us to the majesty and the sovereignty and the authority of God, high and lifted up. And the fact that King Uzziah is dead reminds us of God's eternity. Kings rise and fall, leaders come and go. The the, the affairs of the church wax and wane in terms of their effectiveness. God remains eternal in the heavens. God is present there. Present in Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, present in the temple that is the universe today, present here in his church as we gather, present in the life of every believer. The picture is breathtaking. And who did Isaiah see? Who did he see? You might answer, the God of Israel, and you'd be right. Who did he see? He sees the Father. We learn from the New Testament. For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. And for whom we exist. Isaiah saw the Father. Isaiah saw the Son. He saw Jesus. Paul goes on to say, And for us there is one Lord... Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made and through whom we exist. It says in John chapter 12, after a citation from Isaiah 6, Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. And then in Acts chapter 28, we learn that the Holy Spirit's there as well. The the words of God that God gave to Isaiah uh, are given by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to us through the prophet Isaiah, and then they quote from Isaiah 6, the God of Israel is the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before he became human, by assuming the specially prepared human nature, Jesus, as God, shared the eternal life and love of the, Holy Spirit, of the Holy Trinity. And when he was in Mary's womb, he is sharing the eternal life of the Holy Trinity. The Holy Trinity is what brings everything that exists in the universe into existence And keeps it in existence. Before he came into the world in human form, before he took on a human form, should I say, and while he was in the human form, while he was in his mother's womb, he is actually keeping you in existence in this room. And he's keeping the universe in existence on this day. Because he's not locked into, as God, he's not locked into time. There's no back then to him. He is. Even in his humanity. His humanity is locked into time. But who Jesus is as the Lord is not tied to time. So let me correct an error that has crept into the evangelical world. So many errors came in in the 20th century, unbelievable, and they, they came into the church through evangelicals' careless talk. And these four thea, philosophers uh, determined somewhere around the middle of the 20th century that the word everlasting was not going to mean eternal anymore, it was going to mean everlasting. That something lasts and, lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts and lasts. I always felt when I was at school that mathematics seemed to be everlasting in that sense. Or if you've been sitting outside in a hospital waiting room and somebody you love is in uh, going through a surgery, that can feel like it's everlasting as well, that only without any joke. No, God's eternity does not entail lasting a long time. That would imply a beginning and an end. That would imply a past and a future and even a present. To God there is no past, present, or future. Though He knows and ordains everything that has come to to be, and He knows and ordains our past, our present, our future, And he ordains the past and the present future of the maple tree that grows outside our house. And he's been actively keeping that tree in existence as long as we've lived there. Just as he keeps the stars in their existence. And he's keeping us in existence for a long time. Some of us. God's eternity is outside of time. And has no past, present, or future. Why is that? Because God is in and of himself. He who exists. He who is. He says to Moses, I am that I am. And Jesus teaches us by his own example that he shares that everlasting existence with God. When they came looking for him, you remember he said to the men, came to arrest him. When they asked him, where is Jesus? I am, he said, and they fell back in disarray. Before Abraham was, I am. So the self-existent God then has given existence to every creature, every star, planet, supernova, mountain, sea, tree, insect, animal, human. All of them exist and are kept in existence by the deliberate face-to-face work of God. Now that act of creation then ensures that eternity and time are not confused. In time there is change and decay in all around we see. All the leaves have fallen where we live. Most of them have been collected on our street. Other people's streets have yet to be done. I think it's the people that live there probably attract being overseen. They're members of our church. Um, But ours have gone, so we're superior. But so we're surrounded all the time. Every fall we're surrounded by the the realization that change and decay are built in to time. I meet old friends. <clears throat> I meet old friends, and they are old friends. I haven't changed, but they've changed a whole lot. In Isaiah's vision, God manifests that he exists in a manner that transcends created reality of time and history. And it's only because God is outside of time that he can do what he does for us, the saving and revealing part of God's work on our behalf. Let me read this. From Thomas Wynandy, The son of God who exists in an eternal manner. Truly comes to exist as a man in a timely manner. And he does so without jeopardizing his eternal divine manner of existence. At one and the same time as he's human. Going through human experiences. He is divine. The two don't get merged or confused or mixed up. They're separate, as the Chalcedon Creed makes it clear. But they belong to the same person, the Son of God. Now, as I wind up, I want to just quote from two verses. We talked about the Lord Jesus existing as God. First Timothy 6 it talks about our Lord Jesus Christ, and it says this, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, eternal life, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now what's he talking about there? He's talking about the Lord Jesus. And he's saying about the Lord Jesus that no one Has ever seen or can see what? Well, people saw his human nature. And when he comes again, every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him will look upon him whom they pierced. So what's he talking about? He's talking about his divine nature. In his divine nature, no one has ever seen him. And one of the great things when we get to heaven is we're going to have that beatific vision which allows us, through the humanity of Jesus, to see something of the hidden essence of God. So that's the nature of Jesus. Let me see if I can support my argument that it's Jesus who's at work in the Old Testament everywhere, not just in the types and shadows that we have. and. There's a great class going on addressing that, and you should, if you've got free, or you're free to do, uh, time to go, you should go to that class and learn about types. Uh, here I'm talking about the fact that not only do we have types, but Jesus himself is at work in the Old Testament, wherever the Lord God is at work. In uh, Jude chapter, sorry, Jude verse one, uh, verse five, rather, it says this: "Now I want to remind you although you once fully knew that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus, who saved people out of Egypt. 2,000 years, or maybe not 2,000 years, 1,500 years before Jesus was born at Bethlehem, as God, Jesus is actively bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. He's at work everywhere. A dear friend asked me last Sunday, and I, I mentioned it Sunday evening. A dear friend asked me last Sunday, going through one of the books of the Bible there's not a lot about Jesus. How do, I, how do I find Jesus there? And I said, well, everywhere you see the name God, Jesus is there. Everywhere you see the name Lord, Jesus is there. Every time you see the Lord of hosts, Jesus is there. In the Trinity of the God who is, Jesus is there. There is no place in the Bible where Jesus is not Because there's no place in our lives where Jesus is not. And guess what? What is the gift of God that we are given when we believe in Jesus? This staggers my imagination. We receive the gift of, if you're charismatic, you should shout it out. We receive the gift of eternal Life. What does that mean? We get something of God by getting eternal life. God admits us to something that belongs to Him, He shares it with us. And so when we die, or when Jesus comes again, and we're admitted to that timeless eternity. We can't even think of it without thinking in terms of time. John Newton had to think in terms of time when he thought of that. When we've been there 10,000 years, we'll have more days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we prepare our minds for the incarnation, we remind ourselves this morning of of your glorious, eternal being, the infinity that is you in terms of space, but also of time, your boundlessness, your timelessness. And here we are, Lord, we're thinking, what time is it now? We've got to rush home to get the dinner. We've got to go out and do an errand. We've got to get home before the traffic. All of these things of time and sense are flooding into our minds. We pray, Lord, that today you would just have, for a moment, stopped us, in our track, and made us think of your glorious eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.